Hi, I'm Charles Christoph Carter. And I'm his mom, Ellen Carter. We'd like to welcome you to this week's episode of Serial Dreadfuls, your place to find original content covering everything from dark historical fiction to science fiction, horror, adventure, and the supernatural. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast provider of choice. Thank you. In our last episode, Deputy Doug Murray unwittingly discovered Greg Vivian holed up in a cabin at the Tamarack Motel with an unidentified female accomplice. Murray's attempt to apprehend Vivian resulted in the beatdown of the deputy's life and ended with Vivian escaping yet again. And now, without further ado, the next episode of Yard Work, written by Charles and Ellen Carter, narrated by Ellen Carter. Listener discretion is advised. The headlights from the cruisers illuminated the dull gray bark of the trees that crowded Route 3 as they sped along the deserted road. What's going on, Joe? Jared asked. Ronnie Boucher just got a call from Lyle Campbell down at Debbie Sue's country store. Lyle said he thought he heard shots about an hour ago. He didn't think much about it until Robert Strode came into his store and said he found Bill's truck in a ditch. The engine was still running, the driver's door was open, and the headlights were on, but Bill was nowhere in sight. Lyle said that Bill had come into his store earlier. Lyle told Boucher that he could tell Bill had already put away a few. A frown crept across Joe's face and his eyes narrowed. He readjusted his body in his seat. He could feel Jared staring at him. You're worried about Bill, aren't you? Yes, I guess I am. That stretch of road can get pretty isolated at night. Why didn't Lyle call the station house when he heard the shots, Jared asked. Some people around this area have a hard time making ends meet. Venison is free, even if it is illegal to take it out of season. Lyle probably thought it was someone jacking a deer. I guess that makes sense, Jared said thoughtfully, and then asked, Has Bill ever done anything like this before? Does he have a problem with alcohol? Joe glanced at Jared out of the corner of his eye. If he did, he wouldn't be a deputy of mine. He has a couple of beers now and then, but I wouldn't say he has a problem with alcohol. He's a pretty responsible guy. I'll admit that he can be a little headstrong at times, but he takes his job seriously. The other guys in the department respect and like him. Does he have any enemies? In spite of the situation, Joe smiled wryly and shook his head. Jared was asking all the right questions, just the way he'd taught him when he came on the force as a rookie. He might have a few people in town who dislike him basically because he arrested them for bar fights or drunk and disorderly, but I don't think any one of them would really want to hurt him. So what do you think happened, Jared asked. Joe drew in a deep breath and let it out slowly, thought for a moment, and replied, his voice low and uneasy. I guess that's what we're going to find out.
Joe steered the cruiser deftly along the winding road. Everything that Jared had verbalized, he'd already thought about, along with a few other possibilities. But despite the different scenarios that he had played through his mind, one overriding question kept raising its ugly head. Where's Bill? Deep in his gut, he knew something was wrong. He couldn't explain it, and he didn't want to verbalize it. Joe's eyes peered into the looming darkness that waited just beyond the beam cast by his cruiser's headlights. The paved surface rushed toward him, its two solid yellow lines threaded through its center. He glanced in the mirror and saw the lights of the cruiser following behind him. His tires squealed as he made a hard right off of the blacktop and onto the dirt road. As he sped by Debbie Sue's country store, he noticed that the lights were still on and a figure was standing near the plate glass window. As he rounded a sweeping curve, he saw a truck in the ditch. The driver's door was still open. The headlights were still on. Partially blocking the road was Todd Johnson's cruiser, its red and blue flashing lights bouncing off the overhanging branches. Joe broke hard. His tires lacked traction on the poorly maintained dirt road, and his SUV slid, stopping inches from the ditch itself. Todd Johnson was standing alongside his vehicle, staring at the truck as it sat tipped to one side in the ditch. Todd moved forward and walked around to the driver's side. As Joe stepped out of his SUV, he heard the sound of tires sliding and dirt and gravel bouncing off of the fenders of the cruiser that pulled in just behind Joe's vehicle. I just got here a few minutes ago, but I haven't seen any sign of Bill, Todd said. Todd and Jared followed Joe as he walked over to the ditched pickup truck. Joe slid down the ditch and steadied himself against the open truck door. Joe swept his flashlight beam over the interior. The driver's airbag had been deployed and lay deflated on the steering wheel. There was a six-pack with a bottle missing upended on the floor of the passenger's side and an open bottle on the driver's side between the brake and the gas pedal. He leaned forward and touched the floor beneath the beer bottle. The carpet was wet, saturated with a liquid. He sniffed his fingers. They smelled of beer. Bill must have been drinking it when he went off the road, but he couldn't have drunk much of it because of the soggy condition of the carpet. He leaned across the seat and nudged the other bottles with his flashlight. They were full. He leaned forward and picked up Bill's handset. He called the station. Boucher answered his call. There was a little static, but it was clear enough for his transmission to be understood. Bill's handset was working. He placed it back in its cradle. As Joe climbed back up onto the road, Jared approached him. Joe, there's something over here that I think you should take a look at. They walked down the road a short distance. Jared shined his light across the ditch to a needle-covered area of ground just in front of a stand of firs. Layers of pine needles had recently been disturbed. Just beyond lay a worn path. Remembering the incident earlier that day at the camp area, he turned and cautioned his deputies. Todd and Maynard, I want you both with me, but watch where you step. Joe turned to Jared. Are you feeling up to a little moonlight walk in the woods? Jared looked up at the night sky. I don't see a moon, Joe, but I'm game just the same. Joe nodded. Let's go. The four men carefully worked their way through the woods, it was clear that someone had come this way recently. The duff on the forest floor had been torn up and scattered about. 
they came to a stream and crossed a small footbridge. The woods that they entered on the far side of the footbridge were denser and brush encroached onto the path, making it difficult to follow. As they walked along in silence, Joe thought about the pickup truck. He wondered why Bill would have abandoned it. Did Bill see Vivian and give chase? And what about those shots Lyle heard? They were questions that Joe didn't have answers to. Not yet. Joe turned his attention back to the path. More of the duff had been disturbed. Someone had come this way. They hadn't gone far when Joe noticed a single ghost-like birch standing among the dark, brooding pines. He used his flashlight beam to illuminate the tree. A short distance up the white trunk, he saw splatters of red and fresh cut marks. Jared, shine your light over here. Their two beams of light illuminated the white, chalky surface of the damaged birch. They walked toward it. When they reached the tree, Joe dropped his beam of light to the forest floor just in front of it. The ground in front of the birch had been torn up. It was obvious that some kind of altercation had taken place here as though there had been a frantic struggle. Lyle said Bill had been drinking. Was Bill drunk? Drunk enough for Vivian to turn the tables on him and surprise him? Everyone stay where you are, Joe said as he slowly moved his flashlight beam along the brush-covered ground. A few yards away, his light picked up a shiny satin material. It was the same green color as the jackets that he and his deputies were wearing. His light stopped moving. His eyes remained fixed on the object that was caught in his beam of light. He held his breath. He didn't want to believe what he thought he was seeing. When he finally took a breath, he forced himself to move forward. The closer he got to the green material, the more detail he could see. His stomach tightened. He had found his missing deputy. Jesus, that's, that's Bill, Maynard said. Joe could hear in Maynard's voice the disbelief his deputy must have felt. The light on Bill's body grew brighter as Jared's and then Todd's flashlight beams fell upon it. There was a loud snap and a rustling of leaves just beyond the birch tree. Joe stood up and all four men quickly raised their flashlights and shined them in the direction of the sound. Their beams darted across the densely wooded area, illuminating the shadowy areas between the dark brooding branches of the firs. When Joe was satisfied that there was no one there, he knelt down beside the body. It looked like the Dalton girl and the bodies they found at Mira Lake. Sweet Jesus, Todd swore. Joe detected a note of apprehension in Todd's voice. He glanced up. He saw Todd looking down at Bill's body. Todd's voice betrayed an otherwise calm exterior. Joe stood up. He looked at Maynard Nash. Maynard's eyes were wide. They were darting around the darkened woods. Joe grabbed Maynard's upper arm, forcing the deputy to focus on him. Maynard! Maynard! Joe waited a moment until he was sure he had the deputy's attention. I want you and Todd to go back to the cruisers. Stay together, understand? Maynard nodded and Joe continued. Todd, I want you to call Fox at the state police barracks over in Barstow. Tell him we need his forensics team and the coroner out here. Then I want you and Maynard to get back here. But what about you? Todd asked. Jared and I are going to stay here. Maynard turned to Todd. Todd nodded and the two men disappeared down the darkened, overgrown path. Joe watched their rapidly receding flashlight beams. 
A sudden gust of cold wind rushed through the tree branches above them, creating a whishing sound. In the forest beyond where they stood, there was a crash in the underbrush. Joe? Jared said in a low voice. Quiet, Joe whispered. His hand moved to his service revolver as he swung his flashlight in the direction the noise had come from. They cautiously moved forward. Just beyond the white birch, the noise came again. Whoever or whatever it was, it was moving in their direction. Joe carefully pushed away some of the brush and the fir branches. Forty feet away, Joe's light fell upon a large buck thrashing frantically in the heavy underbrush. Other than the sound of the deer's struggle, there weren't any other sounds. No growls of wolves, no scream from a cougar, nothing. In its struggle, the deer kicked up leaves that were lifted on the wind and swirled wildly about the animal in a thick mass. Jared, shine your light over here, Joe said in a low voice. Joe, Jared said. Jared, I need your light. Joe, you need to take a look at this, Jared said urgently. Joe turned and flashed his light on Jared. Jared was kneeling beside his flashlight. It lay on the ground in front of him. With his right hand, he was holstering his weapon. In the beam of Jared's light, Joe saw Bill's service revolver, and just beyond that, a green glove with the initial G embroidered on it. Joe frowned. His eyes narrowed. There was one last crash in the underbrush. Joe quickly turned back. Jared grabbed his light and sprang to his feet. Both men shined their lights in the direction of the sound. The deer lay on its side. It didn't move. They could still hear the rustle of leaves as if someone or something was moving through them, but they saw nothing. Then the woods became suddenly quiet. There was a pregnant, troubling stillness that made Joe uneasy. He knew the woods that surrounded Grover's Notch well. As a boy, he had spent the majority of his free time hunting and camping in them. It was a familiar setting, at times haunting but always beautiful. He'd gotten his first buck only a mile or so from here. He remembered quietly sitting, watching as it came into range. He felt that the buck could tell that something was wrong by the way it held its head and flicked its ears, appearing to be listening. It was almost as if it sensed something was there waiting. It just didn't know what or where. It continued moving into the clearing. When he raised his rifle to take aim, he shifted his weight. He hadn't noticed that his foot was resting on a small twig. It snapped and the buck froze. He knew he had only seconds before it broke and ran. He could almost feel its surprise when the shot rang out and the bullet hit him. The buck jumped and ran a few yards before falling. Joe knew these woods, but more important, he knew the feeling of these woods. He felt that something was wrong. He sensed a presence out there. It had to be Vivian, waiting, watching. He wasn't sure where he was, but he wouldn't pursue him in the dark and chance losing another man. He was determined that they would continue to be the hunters and not the prey. It was 2.30 a.m. when Joe and Jared climbed into Joe's SUV and headed back toward town, leaving the coroner and the forensics team to finish up and take Bill's body to the morgue. Todd and Maynard followed them in their cruisers. Once the forensic team arrived, Joe had taken the time to drive the short distance down the dirt road to Debbie Sue's country store. After speaking with Lyle, the sense of loss Joe felt as a result of Bill's death was rapidly replaced by anger. 
Lyle was the last person Bill had spoken to before he died, but Joe hadn't expected to hear what Lyle Campbell had to tell him. Bill had told Lyle that he was certain that it was Vivian he had taken a shot at up on the ridge. Yet when he had confronted Bill up on the ridge, Bill had admitted that he hadn't seen Vivian's face, that he couldn't say for certain who it was. It could have easily been a hunter looking for a good place to set up a blind. Why had Bill lied to Lyle about what had happened? Joe pulled his SUV up in front of Sally's house. He and Jared got out as Todd and Maynard pulled their cruisers to a stop just behind the SUV. Todd stepped out of his cruiser and walked over to Joe. Sheriff, you want us to come in with you? No, I'll take care of this. Why don't the two of you go back to the station house? Todd glanced at Jared. Are you sure, Sheriff? Joe nodded. I'm sure. Joe watched as Todd gave Maynard the news and reluctantly climbed back into his cruiser. The two deputies started their engines and drove off. When their taillights had disappeared, Jared asked, You're too quiet. What's wrong, Joe? Bill lied to Lyle about what happened up on the ridge. What did Lyle tell you? Jared asked. According to Lyle, Bill told him he took a shot at Vivian up on the ridge and could have ended the whole thing right then and there, but I stopped him. But I thought he wasn't sure who it was he took a shot at, Jared replied. That's just about the long and short of it, Joe said, a frown creeping across his face. Then you're right. He did lie to Campbell. Sure he did, but that doesn't matter. What does matter is that Lyle believes what Bill told him. And when people in this town find out that Bill is dead, and Lyle tells them what Bill told him, they're going to blame me for his death, Joe replied. Who the hell is Lyle? Joe, you're the sheriff. Why wouldn't they believe you? Joe gave Jared a look of resignation. People trust that sly old fox. He's been peddling rumors along with the milk, bread, and eggs he sells since long before I was a boy. People around here have learned to trust that what he says is, by and large, the truth. We both know that there are movers and shakers in the city. Here it's no different, except there are only two, Beatrice Merriweather and Lyle Campbell. What I think Bill was doing by telling Lyle his version of what happened on the ridge was playing it safe. Bill knew that I was going to want to sit down and talk with him about the incident. Maybe he thought I was going to do more than just reprimand him, and he wanted to get his version circulating out in the community before we had a chance to talk. Perhaps he felt that it would be a way of protecting himself. So he told Lyle Campbell that lie just in case. That's what I think, Joe said, staring off into the dark. We both know that a dead man's statement carries a lot of weight, even if it is a lie. And that's the problem, Joe said in a thick voice. The two men were silent for a moment, both of them taking in the enormity of the problem that Bill's lie had created. Look, Jared, Joe began. He glanced at the darkened house. Don't take this the wrong way, but I'd feel better if you waited in the SUV. Jared nodded slowly. Sure, Joe, I'll wait for you here. I'll drop you by your place when I'm finished here. And you told me that being a small-town sheriff would be a lot less stressful. No jumping hoops, no politics, Jared replied, shaking his head slowly. Joe gave Jared a fleeting, cynical smile. And now, a preview of our next episode.
Joe has to break the news of Bill's murder to his deputy's widow. What will Bill's distraught wife tell Joe when he gives her the bad news? Please consider joining our Patreon site and becoming a Dreadnought. For only $3 a month, our Dreadnoughts get early access to free episodes, exclusive periodic commentary by the authors of the books and the creators of the podcast, exclusive access to episodes of the second half of each book as those episodes are released, and access to the entire back catalog of episodes as our podcast goes forward. Click the link in the show description now to become a dreadnought and aid in the conversion of the uninitiated masses.